Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lomboss. And I'm James Cohn. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflex. Mm. We were just gushing a couple minutes ago about how vaccinations are uh, rolling out in New Orleans right now, which is good. It's very exciting times. Probably going to be sitting on that excitement for a few weeks because <laughs> it's going to take a while for us to be safe to be in the same room again. But I feel like it's soon. I feel like this recording over Skype limbo we've been in for over a year now is coming to an end which is making me very happy right now god i mean snacks need to be involved i'm excited we'll have a pizza party we'll make it like middle school oh my god and it has to be like (laughs) the worst like domino's pizza ever and we have to pay a dollar a slice because that's what those assholes made us do i'm definitely charging you for the pizza (laughs) (laughs) just out of spite and nostalgia right Um, Well, um, I'm still hunkered down, not going out much besides going to work, and I'm watching tons of movies. Are y'all doing the same? Are y'all still packing them in? Or are you too distracted by the outside world? I don't know. I've like actually been out a lot these past week. I know it's not a good idea because I'm not vaccinated yet, but we've been like going out to eat at like restaurants more, and uh, I don't know. The weather's been so wonderful. Lately, just like going to the park and, I don't know, trying to be outside more. But, you know, I still sneak in a few movies here and there. One day when the weather wasn't so great, I stayed inside and watched uh, the first three uh, Toy Story movies. Jesus. All in one sitting? Yeah. Wow. Sounds like personal hell in a way, but I'm sure you liked it. I did. Watching the first one made me extremely nostalgic and i don't know it holds up reasonably well i think the stuff with spike the demonic kid who tortures toys that shit was like very dark it's like darker than i remember and pretty grotesque like some of these freakish dolls that he takes different limbs and but overall i felt like that one was good the second one was pretty good but i was very blown away by the third Toy Story, and I think it might be maybe one of my favorite, if not favorite, Pixar movies. I remember that one having like a Schindler's List kind of vibe, like yeah. a real downer of a movie. <laughs> it's such a downer. Like I loved it, and it's like for a kids' movie, it ticked all the boxes. Where it was like extremely depressing and sad in some points. Like the end of the movie, they're literally in an incinerator, about to be burned alive. And they're all like holding hands, you know, basically comforting each other in death. I'm like, oh my God. Like, and then there's like this really on point political allegory about like fascism and communism because they get shipped off to this daycare uh, and it's basically run by this benevolent dictator, Teddy Bear. So it has like a lot of substance and also, you know, a lot of heart too with you know how kids grow up and they they're attached to these toys and then they go to college and they kind of forget about them so i don't know i thought it was like very touching really dark and also like had 
this like political message I wasn't expecting. I, I think it's great and definitely the best one of the series. So I don't know. I, I don't see how it's for kids really, <laughs> but it was definitely well, if you'd for seen me. The first one, when it came out, you might've been like more mature and like wanting something a little more complex by the time you saw the third one. It might've been made for like the fans that grew up with it. Like here's something that's more, you know, for your age now. Yeah. Cause the kids that watch toy story one, by the time toy story three comes out, they are much older and so the film kind of touches on that. So I don't know. I get why you might not have the best feelings about the Toy Story franchise. Just feels like this ubiquitous like thing that is such a big part of like pop culture. They also look like absolute dog shit to me. <laughs> like I'm Pixar agnostic in general. Like even though they are supposedly the like high artisans of like the CGI kids media that comes out today, I just can't stand the way that stuff looks it's so ugly what's so funny is you watch the first one and i agree it looks pretty bad but when you put it in context that it was the first like 100 percent computer animated film and then you watch the third one and they're able to pull off so much more huge like action you know set pieces and that scene where they're going through the trash compactor into the incinerator like epic grand stuff so to like kind of see the animation evolve to where it got to is i don't know i didn't know about the like incinerator thing that sounds pretty cool um and i'm somewhat on board for watching that if you haven't seen the third one please do i think it's really good like i watched the the og one the first one when it came out and i remember just like being really bored by it and like i couldn't like i found like woody and buzz to be so obnoxious and it just turned me off and i never followed up with the second one and then when the third one came out i was like yeah not for me but i don't know maybe it's worth revisiting well and that that's sort of the like each one sort of builds on their characters like woody is like yeah he's a great friend but like almost to a fault it's like dude get a life, like move on. (laughs) This kid's like going off to college. Like he wants to stick you in the attic, go be with your family of toys. So each character kind of grows with each one, but you know, the humor is like very broad Mm -hmm. and you know, it it still gets some laughs out of me, but I'm telling you, man, that third one just hit the spot. And um, what else have I watched recently? Oh, I, I did watch, this thing on Netflix called The Last Blockbuster, which, speaking of nostalgia, made me extremely nostalgic. For an evil corporation? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, just the nostalgia of like going to a video store on a Friday night and like physically holding the movie in your hand and talking to a staff member about what they recommend. And I would go to my dad's on the weekend. That was our Friday routine was like. He'd pick me up, go to Blockbuster. You pick two movies. I pick two movies. We're going to watch them all over the weekend. And pretty much like he let me pick whatever I wanted, which really opened up a lot of cinema to me. So again, the documentary is not super great, but um, I don't know. It did make me miss going to the video store and how that's like pretty much dead now. It's funny like how they basically put video stores out of business and became like the last one in town in most like small communities. Yeah. They bought up all the independent 
video stores. But because they were the last ones standing, like you can't help but miss them particularly. Like a lot of my access to newer films for the longest time when I was in college, because I couldn't afford to go to the theater very often, was I'd go to those um, four for twenty dollar like liquidation tables they'd oh, have. Love that. Oh, yeah. And just whatever they happened to be selling, I would buy like you know twenty forty dollars worth of movies at a time. And it's just crazy how much of like my media content was filtered by whatever happened to be on those tables, you know? See, I I have more fond memories actually for major video. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, we used to go there all the time. That was well, like yeah. every Friday when I was like in college because like the blockbuster like didn't have funky enough movies for me. <laughs> and major video had that wall where you like walked in, it was like all the way to the left, and that's where they the the cult films cult were. section. Yeah. yeah. They had a really good selection of like splatterhouse, like exploitation films. And, you know, they had pornography too, which Blockbuster did not have. So it just seemed like kind of sketchy. That's how you and me bonded in, in the first place, James, is we used to play Foursquare. Yep. Uh, and then we would go to major, major video and get some cult movie we'd never heard of before, or like a bunch of them, and watch as many as we could stay awake for. Yeah. That was a pretty regular routine. Another film I watched that made me very nostalgic too which I guess is like a theme here. It's called Jasper Mall. And it's about the last, like this mall in uh, Alabama that's basically like dying. Like half of the stores are closed. <laughs> like the Esplanade Mall. Right. Or it made me think a lot of, uh, I haven't been to Esplanade Mall in a while, but Clearview Mall. I walk in there and like, I'm like, how is this? I, obviously Target and the movie theater are the only thing Just keeping an- this place afloat. And FYI, like, they're doing a, a huge revamp of that mall because um, there's going to be an Oshner Clinic where the Sears is. Really? Okay. So they're, like, they ha- they're remodeling, like, the whole thing. So maybe it'll be cool. What about, so what is Esplanade <laughs> Mall like? Because I grew up in Kenner for a big chunk of my life. And, like, I do have fond memories of going to that mall. But last mm-hmm. time I went, just probably five years ago it was a freaking ghost town like and it's i'm surprised such a big it's still mall. open yeah you know huge. like it's a two-story mall so like i feel like it's got like a bath and body works i don't even think the old navy's open anymore and everything else is closed but it's those weird shops that have like five purses inside yeah <laughs> i know exactly what you mean yeah yeah and this jasper mall it's like you know it's alabama and it's like kind of countrified and it's just it's kind of a slice of life documentary. They're just hanging out with the maintenance man and hanging out with the teenage workers at, you know, the hair salon. And then you have all these shots of just half the stores are closed. And this, what used to be like the JC Penny is completely empty. And he has to go check to make sure homeless people aren't staying in there. And Oh my God. It's kind of filled with dread a little bit where like, you know, all these jobs are going to be lost. Mm-hmm. There's a whole like center of the community is going to be gone. Again, it sort of hit me in the feels just thinking about growing up, spending time at Esplanade Mall or going to Lakeside and how, I don't know, a lot of those malls are gone now, mm-hmm. you know, because of online retail. and All that's like terrifying to me because like I hate buying clothes online especially pants and like I'm like what happens if there's no stores open around me and I have to buy my pants online I'm terrified I like making myself go out to buy things um also because I have bad impulse control so like if I know that I could buy whatever blu-ray I want online 
versus like having to get in a car and go drive to like a, a media store. Mm-hmm. I spend way more money, which I try really hard not to. I miss those blockbuster liquidation tables. I'm thinking about them again. Oh, God. <laughs> the, the nostalgia's overwhelming me. Those big old, uh, like, red stickers on the bottom <laughs> corner. Uh, picking them off, getting the glue under your fingernails. And you, can, and you never got them <laughs> off all the way? Never? Oh, no. There's always a sheen left over. Mm. I have very <laughs> fond memories of, like, in college and right after college where I would, like, go get a margarita or something, mm. maybe smoke a little bit, and not even go to, like, buy anything in particular, just, like, walk around the mall there's something about malls that have always that i've always sort of loved yeah and i don't know i don't really know why because it's such a waste of space you pave for all these parking spots and it's just a fun place like it's almost like a club for everyone (laughs) yeah and it's just like rampant consumerism and i again i there's something about that that is interesting to me yeah. But that's kind of dead now. I worked at both like Lakeside and the Esplanade Mall when I was in college. And I was like just obsessed with mall life. Like I would like plan my whole like day around it. I'd be like, I'm going to park by Dillard's and walk through. And I would use a different perfume every day. So I never <laughs> had to buy it. And everyone's like, oh my God, how do you afford like Chance by Chanel? And then tomorrow you're wearing like this J'adore. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, and... <laughs> Just the samples. And then you would make friends with all these people that worked in these stores. Like when I worked at Lakeside, I was friends with the girl at Godiva. And she would give me all the leftover chocolate-covered strawberries through the gate. Um, (laughs) She would come over and get samples of lotion from the body shop where I worked at. It was just this interesting culture and community. I've been watching a lot of Gossip Girl lately. And that just sounds like you're just like getting that lifestyle on the cheap, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I was was a Gossip Girl uh, in Metairie. See <laughs> so, what what about you Brittany? What have you been watching? I've been, you know, getting my 2021 movie life on. I watched the Deadly Illusions movie on Netflix. It's like supposed to be like the worst movie of all time with with Kristen Davis from Sex and the City. Great actress. And it's getting a lot of shit because it's horrible. <laughs> Fair enough. but like I was thinking about it and I'm like you know why did I like it and I'm like why is it getting so much hate and I think it's that people expect so much from movies that come out on Netflix where this movie was it came out as like a Netflix movie but it's actually a more of a lifetime made for TV movie which is up my alley so much which is why I liked it and why no one else did really how would you define that, like a cheap thriller starring like a woman in crisis? This is more on the erotic side of your lifetime thrillers. Ooh, well, now you got me on the hook. Uh, right. But you know how they have those like <laughs> sexy lifetime movies with like that horrific porno acting that has like the most predictable shit that happens. And like also nothing is thought out enough. And you see all these little mistakes and little things that like don't make sense. That's this movie. It's just this rushed, predictable, porno acting, trashy, erotic movie. And I loved it. So Kristen Davis plays this author. I love movies like this where it's like, oh, she's an author. And she has this huge house and she's trying to raise this family. So she's trying to write one of her books. And she writes kind of like Gillian Flynn type stuff. 
And it's what, what I find to be super funny is um, in scenes where she's writing the novel, she's writing her book like using pen and paper. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was so funny. Um, <laughs> so she's writing her novel, pen and paper, and she's like, oh, God, you know, kids, they suck. I should hire someone to like watch the kids so I can like focus on my book. So she does, and she hires this nanny named Grace. And, like, things between, like, so Kristen Davis, the mother and the author, her name's Mary in this movie. So Mary and Grace, the nanny she hired, like, things get, like, super hot between them. Ooh. I know. But, like, you're trying to figure out, like, is Grace, like, fantasizing because she's so deep into writing this book? Or is this really happening? So there's a lot of these scenes where she kind of blacks out and you're like, whoa, was she, like getting too much into her art um, and imagining all this or is grace like slowly seducing her and like things just get super crazy where you're like, Oh my God, like what's, what's grace's deal. Um, So first of all, grace is like the nanny, but like you, you never see these damn kids. Like grace is always like hanging out with Chris and Davis. Like they go bra shopping together. They go like, (laughs) you know, nude swimming in the pool together. Like they just do all these like really hot things together. Um, <laughs> and there's the children are nowhere to be seen, which I think is, <laughs> is so fun. It's so lifetime too. like just, you know, rush, not thought out stuff. And yeah. So it's just kind of like that. It's cheesy. And you're trying to be like, is, you know, like I said, is grace crazy and trying to kill everyone or is Mary have all this in her head. Now, I meant to watch 365 Days, which I feel like is the last one you recommended kind of like this, or at least (laughs) mentioned. Maybe not recommend. That's probably a strong word. I think, like, this is way more like vanilla than that, and it's in a a funny way. But, yeah, that 365 Days was just kind of like a Netflix version of, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey with a lifetime, you know, sprinkle on top, which I liked. Which one's better? Oh, God. I don't know. I feel like... 365 days is like really horned up with like intense sex scenes and it's so stupid. Oh, it is good. This one (laughs) kind of is, it's like, it's trying to be sexy, but it's not, which I think is funny. I don't know. Like this is like a little lighter. I would say do the 365 days and this would be like your palate cleanser, but you're still, (laughs) you're cool down, but you're still riding that, trashy lifetime porno high you know um so yeah deadly illusions i enjoyed it and then another movie i watched which i know you watch brandon and james you might have seen it too um but the bad trip movie that got released a few days ago yeah so i watched it with my mom and my dad and (laughs) my mom like within the first scene where his whole suit gets like sucked off of him and you can see his nuts you know, hanging from behind his, you know, from behind, she was like, oh, that's nice. And she just like walked out. Um, (laughs) And me and my dad were just like red in the face, like couldn't breathe. We were laughing so hard for the majority of the movie. Um, (laughs) I thought it was super funny. And it's, it's funny in that jackass way. And I kind of felt like I was a dumb teenager again. And nothing mattered. Like, I wasn't looking into it to be, like, what's appropriate, what isn't. You know, I just kind of didn't give a shit. I will say there were a couple things that definitely, like, offended me. But it's a prank movie starring Eric Andre. Like, 
being mm-hmm. offended is something you're kind of signing up for. Right. There were a couple things where I was like, well, that's kind of in poor taste, but like, what am I watching? I'm watching an Eric Andre prank <laughs> a very movie. Like. Poor taste. I know. And that's the thing too, because I do that when I watch movies where I'm like, I'm like, eh, this feels weird. And then with this one, I just kind of turned that switch off and I was like, just I'm I'm a 12 year old again and everything is funny. And the more he throws up, the funnier I'm good. I think it is. <laughs> I did have like kind of a um interesting read on the movie, I think. Ooh. Um, Ooh. So you know, it is like Jackass. You're right. Like, it is basically just an excuse to string together, like, a bunch of stunts. Right. But there's a plot. <laughs> there is a plot. Yeah. And what kind of shocked me about it was just that the plot feels, like, so retro. Like, it feels like a 90s comedy from, like, the Farley Brothers or the Waynes Brothers. Like, it feels so specific yes. to the kind of comedies we grew up with. I'm so glad you 20, said 30 that. 30 years ago. Because it felt like, it did feel like a Wayne's Brother movie. Like, with the sister and, you know, trying to find the brother to get her car back. Like, all of that. Well, and there's a very specific gag to a very specific Wayne's Brother movie that I will not um, spoil here. But uh, oh. <laughs> it, it makes that connection very explicit. It does. By the time it's over. I think, so I actually watched this two nights ago. Mm. Um, and I think what I... Liked about it is, you know, I, I was thinking of it more as like, I guess, kind of Borat without any political goal. But in those films, it seems like the people he wants to see these pranks, he's like kind of ridiculing them. And in this movie, I didn't really get that negativity towards the actual people witnessing the pranks. Like, I don't know, most of the people kind of like, not that they shrugged, but... I didn't feel like the movie was really making fun at them. It was more... Yeah, it's like weirdly wholesome in some ways. That's kind yeah. of like Eric Andre's style of humor is like he just like makes an ass out of himself for our pleasure. And, you know, thank you for your service, sir. But that that too kind of feels a little better. Like it's not like like kind of like how Borat kind of picks at certain people. Yeah, and it's a little them. mean. And I, I didn't get the sense that this was mean. Well... That was one of the things that did bother me, though, is, like, some of the people that they're involving in this stuff are, like, literally just trying to get through a shift at their job. True. And, like, work just fucking sucks in general. Like, especially if you deal with the public, there are, like, erratic things that happen and you kind of just have to, like, keep a calm face and, like, just kind of live through it and just try to get through your shift. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this lady doesn't need to deal with you, like, bursting through glass while she's, like, cleaning up a kitchen, you know? Like... Certain things like that did kind of bother me, but, you know, in the end credits, they show them, like, going back and kind of doing, like, aftercare and being like, hey, it's all in good fun. Like, there's no danger here. Uh, I hope you're okay. I thought that that was pretty sweet. Like, I I like those, that, like, that whole part with, like, you know, when the credits start rolling and it's like, here's what we actually did to, you know, help these people feel better. Because I did kind of feel bad at that part where that woman was praying while he was like, (laughs) hey. Off the it's terrifying. <laughs> but you know what? This movie is also like way funnier than Borat too, which uh, excuses a lot of that stuff too. <laughs> like the humor I think that's what matters is at the it's end of so the day. so good, and I feel like it's evenly distributed between the three comedians. You know, like it's not all Eric Andre like taking over, being stupid funny the whole time. Like Tiffany Haddish, she was so freaking funny. Piss your pants, funny. Like, I love that character that she played. Also, because it reminds me of, like, an aunt that I have. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, she was just so good. 
And what's the other guy's? I always forget his name. I mean, he's not. Uh, Lil Rel Howery from yeah. Get Out. Yeah. And he's funny too. And it's like they're all playing to their strengths and they're playing all these characters that we know them as. Um, so and, and it they just work so well together, like all three of them. And I I just I love this movie. <laughs> so those are like the two the big things um I've been watching. You know, of course, I'm I'm always in a sinkhole of trashy reality TV. So that's been kind of taken over and I'm trying to get out of it, but God, the Seeking Sister Wife show just started. So I'm like, well, there goes a little less time for movies. Um, <laughs> but Br- <laughs> Brandon, what have you been watching? I was for a while doing a lot of like Oscars catch up because when they announced the nominees this year, I had seen like practically nothing that was nominated uh, besides like Borat, which I thought was okay. And like a couple of their movies. So I was like, oh, I'm going to make a list of all the movies that are available and catch up with them. Or at least the ones I'm interested in. I wasn't going like, to force myself to see stuff I didn't care about. And very quickly, I got out of that mode. Like, I already have slowed down. Um, actually, the one that broke my spirit is one that James really liked last year. It was on one of your favorite movies of last year. It was Another Round, which came out on Hulu. Yeah, what would you think? I did not like that movie. Really? Why? I don't know. It's it's this like midlife crisis movie for these men that are just not interesting at all. And I didn't find the just sort of like reflections on alcohol very intricate or deep in any way. It was just kind of like everything you would expect to happen if someone drank all day happens gradually. And I just didn't find the characters interesting enough to like hold my attention beyond that. Especially since they're all so like faux philosophical like they're always like referencing Hemingway and um Churchill and like all these like great political and you know artistic minds well yeah they're, they're full of shit that's they're a, all so full of shit they're full of, <laughs> it's yeah not, that's it's not mean, a compelling story so you didn't care for that that final scene no not not that either like I felt like that was the promise of like what you should be waiting for. It's like you get your like lollipop after going to the doctor. So I'm like sitting there the whole time waiting for this big dance breakout at the end and I didn't find that particularly exciting either. Like it was fine. It was like definitely one of the better parts of the movie. You know what I really liked though was the himbo um gym teacher guy. I found his character both funnier than anyone else. Like his jokes landed in a way that no one else did. And um, just kind of like the tragedy of his story where like he can't keep up with all his friends. Like he's got more of a, he's got whatever gene like turns you in an addict, that impulse control issue that the rest of them are able to switch off. Like I was, I was kind of compelled by his storyline, but he's also such a small part of the movie um, in a way. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I disagree because I, I really, really liked it. I, I mean, I think your point about, the unlikable characters. I mean, yeah, they are unlike, they're like these middle-aged white men that are philosophizing about turning into drunks. I, that, that didn't really bother me. I mean, I think that was like kind of intentional. The, the aspects of it I found interesting was how that experiment, like, like you were pointing out with the gym teacher, like it affected each one of them in a different way. And I think ultimately it was kind of making the point that if you have a support system, you can kind of dig yourself out of it. But for the gym teacher guy, he didn't have a support system and he also had this gene. Um, So he was pretty much doomed. 
and you know some of the other guys are able to pull themselves out and then you know you get this I I felt like the last scene was like very interesting because obviously the drinking it's bringing out this great joy but you know at the end he jumps out into the water and you just kind of I don't know it's sort of like conflicted like yeah he feels good in the moment but what comes after this so I actually think it did have some some interesting things to say about drinking culture that I hadn't like I said I hadn't really seen in a lot of other movies where it tends to be like very doom and gloom maybe it's just like the sort of like kind of traditional masculinity that they are all sharing like I just couldn't care very much because a lot of it is about them like feeling they're like they're losing their like youthful virility as they're like getting older like they're becoming less manly as they like settle into these like marriages and things and i don't know i I, after watching especially like deerskin and a few other movies last year that were also about midlife crises but like were a lot more critical um and like directly commenting on how kind of silly the behavior is well, I think this film was too. Maybe it was a little more subtle, but I don't think you're supposed to really sympathize with somebody. Like they, a lot of times they're just acting like jackasses, and it, you know, you just want to shake them and be like, "Dude, you're middle-aged guy, just fucking grow up." You know, and they're stuck <laughs> in this like perpetual childhood, which I think is real. Like a lot of middle-aged men, that is the crises of middle age for them. So I don't know it. I, I felt like that was honest. Yeah. I mean, may, maybe subtlety is just not my uh, strong suit in general, too. Well, so what else did you see as far as... I uh, I watched Tenet. I uh, got it for free Ooh. from the library, finally. I watched it with the subtitles on, uh, with very low expectations, and had a good time. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's that's pretty much what I said. When it gets to the time travel stuff, we're we're good, man. Yeah. It's a really stupid 90s action movie that thinks it's so smart. Like, uh, it's kind of done, doing the same thing as another round. Like, it's kind of talking itself up as being, like, very, like, intellectual. Or at least, like, the characters in another round. And really, like, in its bare bones, it's just, like, a dumb-as-rocks action movie. And all that really matters is watching the stuff blow up backwards <laughs> like that actually is like constantly exciting every time it happens like all the action sequences are really fun yeah i mean i pretty much just whenever they're talking and trying to explain it my brain turned off and then when it goes <laughs> to the buildings blowing up in reverse i'm like i'm engaged again Hell yeah <laughs> and that was like for the entire film you know i i get the criticism that nolan is sort of gone up his own ass with this like you know, he's trying to stimulate the viewer's mind and their eyes. And like, I feel like he has gone a little too far in making his plots extremely convoluted and hard to follow. But visually and sound wise too, the guy can make a great action scene. There's no doubt. And the funny thing about that too, is I think the movie acknowledges how convoluted it is. Like there's a sequence where, um, John David Washington's character is asking Robert Pattinson to keep explaining things, and he keeps asking more and more questions. And Robert Pattinson just like stops answering them. He like just closes his eyes, almost like he has a hangover, and he's like, "Look, just don't 
think about it too hard. <laughs> Stop asking me this stuff. You don't really need to know how it works. Take a nap. You're going to need your energy because we're about to go out and like blow more shit up backwards, <laughs> which I found very amusing. But I will say like he has some diehard fans and I was reading this online thread about the movie and people that were trying to explain the plot holes and why there are no plot holes and people debating that and trying to explain in every little detail like how this time travel stuff works and it was just the most like mind-boggling discussion like dude (laughs) it's not that deep like you don't need a if you need a 10 paragraph explanation of how the mechanisms of the plot work then the plot has not worked but I, i do agree with your overall assessment it's pretty freaking cool watching stuff get blown up in reverse. Yeah. And it's got, um, I think it's main Oscar nomination is for like visual effects. And it's like, yep, that, that I, I think, I don't know. I don't know what else would win over that, but if it wins and I think it does deserve it. I, I did watch one major like front runner for like best picture too. And I was surprised to be like very emotionally affected by it, which, you know, I've been kind of like avoiding, sort of straightforward dramas recently. I don't know what that is, but like I've just been way more interested in like gimmicky horror movies and stuff like that. But I watched uh, Sound of Metal. Oh, which yeah. That was really one of my hit me. top like, 10. Yeah, that was fantastic. Still haven't seen it, but it is on my queue. So why why did it connect with you emotionally? Um, well, you know, I can't like say that I have the addiction issues or the um sudden struggle with like disability issues that the movie kind of tackles and actually the word disability is kind of a controversial term to use in this context because a lot of the movies about how like hearing loss or lack of hearing is not a disability it's part of like the main debate in the center of it but like a lot of what happens in it really just felt very familiar to me the diy like metal scene that they're portraying is so authentic watching it immediately i was like oh that's a juicifer show like I've been yeah. to that show and I've actually walked away from Jucifer wondering if I had like permanently damaged my hearing because they're so fucking loud for yeah. no reason. And it turns out the um, director or the writer, um, the guy who wrote Place Beyond the Pines as well, he like started the script basing it off of Jucifer in the first place, which I read after the fact. And it's like, okay, yeah, that all checks out. Oh, wow. I didn't even put that together. That totally, totally makes sense. But beyond that though, you know, the guy is struggling with, you know, navigating this, like, life without hearing and, like, being freshly sober. That is, like, kind of the main text of the film. But, like, the actual struggle, when you think about it, is, like, him just having to sit still and be alone with himself. And the way that expresses it itself is, like, he's always rushing around. And if there's a problem, he gets, like, explosively angry Um, and, like, stubborn, and just wants to constantly fix things instead of, like, just sitting and, like, being quiet and sort of, like, going in that meditative state. And that stuff really spoke to me. Like, I have an issue with silence and sitting still with my own thoughts and, like, being reflective and meditative. Like, that is a thing I've been working on for a long time is, like, being able to be quiet and still and with my own thoughts. And... I mean, at least personally, that's what I got out of it. Like, was a lot of it was directly dealing with that discomfort with your own inner life. 
and I don't know, just combining that with like the DIY music scene stuff that felt familiar. I was like, oh, I know this feeling. I know this world. And uh, I was like really emotionally weighed down by it by the end. Like I was just, I was really like feeling the uh, the drama in a way that I haven't in a while. Which especially for like a mainstream like Oscar film, I, I was not ex- expecting that. It's very it's very good, very well done. Yeah, I, I've talked about it in our best of. 2020 and I, I feel the same way it just it connected with me on a few levels and I and I totally agree with what you're saying about the just struggle to just sit without distraction you know there's that great scene where his like therapist says like you know you're gonna sit in this room and just write and he like struggles so hard to do that that connected with me and that you know I do think the way the film ends you know his character arc is so great and life affirming and it goes to what you were saying about how you can think of this as a disability or you can just accept this and be at peace with it and to see his character like kind of get that peace at the end was really emotionally rewarding yeah it also like i've talked about before with the sound design of you like actually going and kind of experiencing what what it's like to lose your hearing over time. I thought that was brilliant as well. So yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with you. I kind of wish I had seen that in a the theater, that one and bad trip for di- very different reasons. I think right? Bad trip would have been fun with an audience. Uh, sound of metal would have been fun to be like kind of immersed in that sound design. Well, um, we do have one more like Oscar type movie to talk about today. Uh, it was nominated for a bunch of stuff. I don't think it won much of anything, <laughs> but it was a movie based on an idea by Bob Balaban, who is the topic I chose for today's episode. I, I want to talk about Bob Balaban not as an actor, but as a creative within the film industry. Because I found a couple weird-ass movies he made in the 90s uh, that I wanted to, to share with y'all. But we'll, we'll start with something a little fancy. We'll start with more Oscar prestige <laughs> before we go into the depths of the gimmicky genre stuff I like to submerge myself in. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Mr. Weissman, mm-hmm. yes. tell us about the film you're going to make. Oh, sure. It's called Charlie Chan in London. It's a detective story. Set in London. Well, not really. Uh, most of it takes place at a uh, shooting party in a country house, sort of like this one, actually. Uh, murder in the middle of the night, a lot of guests for the weekend, everyone's a suspect, uh, you know, that oh. sort of thing. How horrid. Well, as I said, Gosford Park uh, was a pretty big critical hit when it came out in 2001. Um, it was pitched by Bob Balaban to Robert Altman. And then there's actually conflicting information about this. I don't know who brought Julian Fellows in to write it, but uh, basically the creator of Downton Abbey came and like co-wrote this movie with Balaban and Altman behind like the creative process for it. Uh, so it kind of works kind of like a backdoor pilot for Downton Abbey in a lot of ways. It's this big, expansive cast, Altman-type film set, um, around, what is it, like 1930s, sort of like tangential royalty in this country house on a hunting expedition. I wanted to bring this up as an introduction to who like Bob Balaban is as a person and how I think about him. When I said his name originally, did y'all know who he was? Like, is he like a household name to y'all? Not a household name, but when I Googled him and I saw his face, I immediately recalled numerous films that he had starred in. Yeah, I I had to Google him, and then, yeah, when I saw his face, I was like, oh, you know, 
guy from Lady in the Water. <laughs> Not my first thought with him. I, I think of him as like working with like certain directors over and over again. Like he's in a bunch of Wes Anderson movies. He's in like every Christopher Guest film. Um, I guess he works with Altman multiple times as well, or, or at least uh, feels comfortable enough with him that he like approached him with this idea for Gosford Park. And the thing I think this movie makes sense coming from him in that this is kind of how I think of him. He's like a amusing man. <laughs> like he's got a very on the surface sense of humor and he's kind of a little weirdo, which is how he's usually presented, but he's got this like sophisticated air about him. I think Gosford Park does all those things. It's like this murder mystery, Agatha Christie style, like sitting down to dinner and someone gets murdered and everyone's a suspect kind of thing. But it's also very goofy and it has some broad humor mixed in with it. And he especially is like the driver of the humor in the film. He plays this movie producer from America. His name's Morris Wiseman. He's the only Jewish man in the house. And they all call him the funny little American because everyone else is like a landed gentry from Britain who all know each <laughs> other. And they're like, who is this like stranger in their midst? And he is doing research for a Charlie Chan picture called Charlie Chan in London and uh, spends most of the night that this murder and murder investigation happened. He's like on the phone with California negotiating how this Charlie Chan picture is going to go, which is like a really funny joke. Um, And every time he's on screen, I laugh, Uh, especially whenever he interacts with Maggie Smith, who's playing like the most like snobby British elite of anyone in the house. Like the Dowager Countess. Yeah, like she did carry over to Downton Abbey along with a couple other actors from this. She's playing basically the exact same character in both properties. It's like this role that I feel like Maggie Smith was just like born. Like that type of character she does very well. Yeah, even her jokes in Murder by Death are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. I remember. Well, yeah. I, what I love too about, you know, he's on the phone with, I'm assuming, you know, the producer in Hollywood. It's like th- sort of this meta thing where at one point he's talking about like, well, you know, of course the... Uh, the butler did it like uh, the butler could do it. It's like, like he's crafting kind of the movie that we're watching, which he pitched originally, which he pitched. Yeah. It's like a couple different levels there. And I, I thought that was really clever. Like that, that definitely got a chuckle out of me. Are y'all like super familiar with this one? Cause I feel like I've seen it a bunch of times, but I always find new stuff every time I watch it. Cause there's so many characters. Yeah. This was actually my first time seeing it. Um, I thought it was Godsford Park for a long time. <laughs> and when oh, I was no. like, yeah. So it was interesting searching for it. And I was like, oh, Gosford. But I, I kind of knew what it was. It's it's iconic, right? I mean, if you see that, you know, this is, you know, Blockbuster days. It was sitting yeah. there on the Blockbuster yeah. shelf. I remembered that whole, you know, cover with, you know, the knife in the butler's back. Um, with the actual like movie name and everything. So I just never, ever got around to seeing it. And it is such like an explosive movie because there's so much going on and it's not a bad thing. Like, like you were saying, Brian, like I could see like rewatching this and noticing things and like really vibing with, you know, a particular component of the movie more so the second time around than the first time and then the third and the fourth and so on and it does a really good job of like making sense of all these overlapping stories yeah i think that's like an altman thing because Mm -hmm. 
when I watched this when I was probably in like ninth grade, kind of like you're saying, it was like a blockbuster thing like I was talking about earlier where my dad actually picked this movie out because it's like a prestige drama. And uh, I think as a kid, I didn't really appreciate it much as much. Like I was so bewildered. And it was sort of like that watching it again in the beginning, especially like you're presented with so many characters. It's like, oh my God, like how am I ever going to keep track of this in my <laughs> mind? But what I've realized with like seeing more Robert Altman pictures is like he has an uncanny ability to pull that off. By like halfway into the movie, I understood the relationships between everyone. I kind of got the drama in the house, each character had great scenes that sort of fleshed them and their motivations out. And I think that's like incredibly difficult to pull off. I mean, there's some movies where you have four or five characters and they can't flesh them out in this way. So that was like really impressive to me watching it a second time. Yeah, that upstairs downstairs divide like really like doubles the cast Mm -hmm. like there's two entirely different worlds and they do like intersect a little bit but for the most part they're mostly separate and i love how the movie spends a little more time with the downstairs cast too i mean they're always more interesting right oh totally follow lady mary around all the time (laughs) i know (laughs) i'm actually shocked you haven't seen this before because this is so downton abbey and i I know you and i like have long bonded over that yeah i do find that a little surprising same like I, i didn't realize how down abbey it was or if i would have known if if i if somebody would have just told me like you know years ago i would have jumped on this <laughs> i just did it i didn't know i've seen a little bit of downton abbey and i knew that this writer went on to didn't he go on to write for downton abbey as well he's like the main creator of the show, mm-hmm. yeah. the show yeah. yeah i think this was actually pitched like downton abbey was pitched as a spinoff with these characters at first and they decided to go a different direction with it but i, I don't does downton abbey have that like I don't because what I really liked about this film was the class commentary that I felt oh, was yeah. really, really like deep and on point. Is that an aspect of Down uh, Abbey, or is it more? <laughs> yes. Or, or is it more about like just the the drama and the the relationships? It's both. It's like both invested in the like soap opera drama of all the people upstairs, and like there is a little, not a little. There's a lot of nostalgia for like the old ways and like all this tradition that's kind of being steamrolled by modernity. Like the movie's not exactly critical of the wealth class in that way, but all of the downstairs characters get equal weight in their drama and like the way that they're sort of born into this like cycle of servitude that they can never earn their way out of is very much a topic of the show. And there's this one character, Daisy downstairs mm. who over the course of the show basically becomes like a communist comrade is like uh, petitioning yeah. for equal rights uh, for the downstairs <laughs> staff and it's amazing but it, it's also a huge time investment there's what like seven seasons of that show or some shit and they just go Six. on and on and on i guess yeah. this felt like a, a so i guess it's like a distillation of the best yeah. aspects of that show if you like this movie and you don't mind a little soap opera downton abbey is very similar I will say the overlapping Robert Altman dialogue is missing. Like Altman's eye and his, the way he can construct a scene that's sort of like loose. You don't know what direction you're being pulled in at any time. It's all very organic and it feels like you're at the party. Uh, That's missing from Downton Abbey. That's all replaced with like soap opera schmaltz. Well, that's what I noticed here too. Like 
it was so cool. Sometimes there would be, you know, you have your focal point of the scene, these two characters, but then in the background, there's something subtle going on that like catches your eye, two other characters interacting and the camera just sort of, first of all, the cinematography is exquisite, but like just the way he moves around a scene is pretty masterful. It feels like you're circulating. It feels like you're like going between conversations, saying hello, checking in to hear like a drunken quip from Maggie Smith and like drifting back to the (laughs) piano to hear more ditties from the uh, famous actor who's come across the pond with uh, Morris Wiseman. There's a lot going on at all times to the point where I actually forget. I've seen this movie multiple times um, in recent years and I always forget who was killed and who killed them um, until I'm actually watching it again because I'm so invested more in like the interpersonal dynamics. I don't know that the murder mystery is like the main draw of the movie for me. Yeah, same. I agree with that, but I feel like the ultimate answer to the murder mystery, the reason it works for me is it totally connects all these themes about class that the film has been talking about the whole time. And like, I was also thinking about like Knives Out is another like Agatha Christie sort of thing. But like that one's sort of this like gotcha kind of twist and it has similar themes, but this one, it felt like a very emotional appropriate answer to the question of like who killed this man and why that really like put a perfect endpoint on the film. Yeah. And I I think that storyline of like why it's done is definitely like a Downton Abbey type storyline oh yeah the actual murder i don't know i mean i guess there is like a bunch of murder mysteries on that show even the first episode is someone dies and the body has to be hidden (laughs) so i I don't i don't want to say they're completely divorced but you know i i will always stump for movies being the (laughs) the preferred medium over television so i like that you can get basically the entire thesis of that show in two and a half hours or however long this is. What? Uh, <laughs> I like too that the murder mystery ultimately like no one really cares. Yeah. He yeah. gets murdered. The detective shows up, Stephen Fry sort of bumbling so and yeah. he does nothing, does nothing, <laughs> just leaves. He let the, the guests go and no one really bats an eye and they kind of move on with their lives. And then we get the answer to the mystery and it's, and it's still satisfying. You know, it doesn't take the cheap way out of like, oh, there was this twist and this clue that you missed. And now we're going to lock up the perpetrator. Like the movie has other things on its mind. And I also like that you get to um, hear Michael Gambon do his uh, same shtick from The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, mm. where he just like will not shut the fuck up and just walks around room to room, like boisterously talking over everyone and like basically molesting the staff and just being a huge asshole the whole movie. <laughs> well, until until he disappears from the storyline. But <laughs> do y'all have any other like performances that stand out besides like Maggie Smith, Michael Gambon, Stephen Fry? Because there's a ton of people here. I mean, I liked Emily Watson a lot in this. Like her character felt really lived in and authentic to me. And uh, I don't quite know what to think of the Ryan Philippi character like he was the one what where a little I, bastard yeah i kept going back and forth like is this a good performance or not like and i guess it's sort of the point is it, you know it turns out he's an actor researching doing a role a job and yeah. he's doing a bad job of acting and i, I guess it does like kind of work and i love his comeuppance where 
he's kind of rejected by both classes because he hasn't picked a side. And that yeah. that felt like a pretty good point. So maybe a better casting choice than a than a performance. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a fair point. I really liked um Helen Mirren. Oh yeah. How she kind of seems she's not like in the forefront a lot and then like this you know the big reveal in the ending how she just kind of like it sort of becomes like her movie in a way (laughs) and i thought that was kind of cool well that line she has what is it that she's the perfect servant is Mm -hmm. how she is the whole movie she's just kind of like there in the background doing her job she's at the beck and call of these rich elites and then you know like you said what ends up being the truth about being the perfect servant, I thought, again, like summed up all the themes of the movie in a really, really clever way. So, yeah, I liked her performance, too. And then you have Bob Balaban just talking about Charlie Chan every time the camera pans back to him, <laughs> adding nothing to the plot whatsoever, uh, just sort of having a good time, which is very funny. I had no idea that Bob Balaban was in any way involved. <laughs> i was very surprised well it's so interesting like i don't i was reading more about his career and like i mean the dude's done it all it's like stand-up comedian actor director working with robert altman on gosford park and he wrote like this very like he wrote like a couple of like weird young adult or like kind of like children's type books about a robot dog or something like that the dog yeah (laughs) <laughs> and he grew up um in like a hollywood family like i i think his you know a couple generations before him were like old hollywood like producer types and then his like immediate family his parents owned these like this theater chain in chicago uh for like cinemas so he, he grew up in the industry i always thought of him as like an east coast guy he feels very like new york to me mm-hmm. um, even though he grew up in chicago but he, yeah. he lives i was reading he does reside in manhattan so i guess he that ha- makes the most sense yeah so he has like ended up where he belongs i guess yeah and uh, of course the reason i wanted to bring him up in the first place is because uh knowing all that about him and like the type he usually plays in this movie and other films and the fact that he pitched gosford park in the first place like did not expect what his directorial career is like. <laughs> once I discovered the kinds of movies he directed once he was given like the keys to the kingdom, that I was shocked by that. I'm very excited to talk about those. Yeah, they're all fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest thing about this weird movie is that it has no other purpose, as far as I can tell, than to discuss. There are scenes that are put together like a comedy, but they're not very funny, and other scenes that look satirical, but satirical of what? I don't know. The movie is finally and basically just a very dark and depressing nightmare, a bizarre excursion through disgusting images. It's the kind of movie where you sit there and you have a really, really creepy bad time. Not me. No? I actually enjoyed it. So I I was thinking about Bob Balaban because I recently watched a movie he directed in 1989, he is not in the film, unlike Gosford Park. He's nowhere to be seen. And it is very much against type of how I think about him. Like I was just saying, he you know grew up in Chicago. He lives in New York now. So I think of him as like a city guy, like an erudite, uh, sophisticate. And he made a couple movies in the late 80s and early 90s that are set in like 
very middle America, like white suburbia. Mm-hmm. Starting with Parents in 1989. And this movie just really blew me away. It is a yeah. cheap 80s horror film in a lot of ways. Like that title, Parents, is kind of like, you know, the dentist or the stepfather or the ice cream man. Like it's one of those like R rated movies that kind of feels like it was made for kids. Um, and it's exploiting like things that scare kids in particular. And this one's about a kid who is scared of his own parents, um, particularly his dad, who's played by Randy Quaid. The kid is a little weirdo. He looks like a little Steve Buscemi. Um, <laughs> and he does not talk very much. And he's like afraid of meat. He doesn't want to eat his dinner most nights. He doesn't want to talk to people. He doesn't want to be alone with his dad. He's just kind of like an introvert. And his like all-American, leave it to beaver, like 1950s parents are super frustrated with that. Like they want him to come out of his shell. But he is increasingly paranoid about them and thinks that they are cannibals. Starting with a night where he walks in on them having sex and the smeared lipstick all over his mother's face as his parents are rolling around in the living room looks like blood to him. Uh, and it's mixed in with a sweat. It's just this monstrous image. So and the gross. movie kind of builds from there where like a lot of childhood fears of like being helpless as your dad carries you to bed or like jumping into your bed and the bed turns into like a pool of blood or afraid that your classmates are like space aliens. Uh, just really like tapping specifically into childhood fears and like filming the movie from a child's point of view. Like it's got kind of like a Pee Wee's Playhouse vibe, but sort of abstracted as like Lynchian horror, like, yes. like blue velvet. I'm so glad stuff. you said David Lynch. Cause that's what I was feeling when I was watching this. Were you as impressed by the movie as I was? Like, I I really expected kind of like a gimmicky movie about, you know, oh no, my parents are cannibals. But instead it was this like over the top art film with like an intense like cinematic eye. I fucking love this movie. Yes. I don't want to overdo it and call it like a masterpiece or something, but like it is so horrific. And I feel like I think it's hard to pull off like you talked about David Lynch, like pull off that tone mm-hmm. of dread, but this film does it. And it really does capture that feeling of dread you have as a kid when you're helpless and the world doesn't make any sense. And, you know, he's like got this like girlfriend kind of, who's like way taller than him. He's like learning about sex for the first time and seeing his parents and the food they cook is weird. Like where'd they get this meat from? They've been eating leftovers for weeks since they moved to this new town. <laughs> right. He's like leftover from what? <laughs> and yeah. It just, what I found kind of interesting was reading some of the critiques of the film saying like, Oh, it tonally doesn't know what it is. It was billed as like a black comedy and it's totally all over the place. I didn't feel like that at all. I think this is like no. straightforward Lynchian, like psychosexual horror. And I, I don't think there was like really any laughs at all for me. Like I was just like, my God, this is terrifying. This is like a true horror film. So yeah, I, it really made an impression on me. Yeah. I've, I've seen this before and I just remember like what, thinking going into it that it was going to be like a goofy um, 80s movie. And 
I was just terrified <laughs> by the end of it. And um, something I like about this movie, and it's so disgusting, like, it's just the the constant close-ups of, like, meat. Like, the, the grinding of the meat in the meat grinder, the slicing of it, the, like, raw meat. And, like, blending that in with, like, those, like, you know, the cannibalism theme in the movie it was just so like disgusting and like every time i see this movie poster i just see like all that gross ass like meat and <laughs> it's done in the most like 1950s style way like you know meatloaf and then the roast and the ugh, it's just it's so gross and the sausage scene where they're like the sausages kind of wrap him up <laughs> which was very eraser head you know it's funny like there's a lot of dream sequences in the movie um uh-huh. where stuff like that happens but it really doesn't even matter when he's dreaming and when he's not it's all feels like a kid's nightmare like uh oh, that yeah. sausage scene i don't even remember if it happened for real or happened when he was sleeping like i don't i don't think oh god that i thought all of it was, was was real <laughs> i don't think <laughs> i don't think any of it was a damn nightmare it was <laughs> i do think it is a little funny though like hearing james say it's not humorous i i think it is funny in a discomforting way like one of the more straightforward jokes is when he goes to randy quaid's job he goes to like spy on his dad at work and his dad is explaining this chemical he invented for this like evil corporation called Toxico. Toxico, yeah. <laughs> and they show a little model of a little fake toy airplane spraying this chemical he created on this like mini rainforest. And the dad is like chipperly explaining how within a couple days he could like destroy the Amazon to clear way for whatever, you know, evil business Toxico has to conduct there. And that scene is a joke but it is so dark and like bitter that like yeah maybe i don't laugh out loud because it's not like a zinger it's more like a what an evil bastard (laughs) like it's kind of like squirmy humor oh yeah i don't know like watching it this time around i kind of really felt terrified of like randy quaid as like you know the dad's character and i Oh, and especially when he like just became more and more abusive towards the son <laughs> was really hard to watch. And oh god, just that feeling of like could you imagine like not trusting your parents? I kind of identified with the kid honestly. I did too. Oh my god, yeah. Brandon. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I think that's how I felt as a little kid just kind of like cautiously worried about everything and just like skeptical that everything was trying to kill and eat me at all times. Yeah. Um, I mean that's what I was saying about how like it captures something about being a a child that's like going through puberty and starting on that journey to becoming an adult and the world just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And it's, disgusting. and it's disgusting like and weird and like i just want to be a kid again <laughs> and yeah. not eat all that gross ass meat that your mom would make you eat yeah i i guess i kind of like identified with it like mostly when i was younger i was like oh my god like i'm like this you know lost royal child that got forgotten and like it's gonna be like the princess diaries when i grow up um you know like that was kind of like my my thing and then also i was like oh my god i'm gonna get abducted by aliens at any second like so i never really had like too 
I guess me and Brandon were just like two little weirdos. When we were yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like this movie is just like, I love how y'all are like, it's just resonating with our childhood. <laughs> and I'm so sorry about that. It sounds horrible. I mean, I wish I lived on this Pee Wee's Playhouse set they live on. Like oh my that God, that wall, kitsch. the wallpaper in the kitchen. Could you die? Oh, it's so gorgeous. So great. And the mom wears all those big crinoline skirts and oh. um, just everything's right in its place. It's it's yeah. a beautiful movie. And he kind of goes over the top with how it's shot too. Like yeah. there's a lot of like split diopters oh, uh, so and like good. POV shots of him being like carried by his dad. And well, and to go back to what you were saying about um, Randy Quaid, like I grew up knowing him in his like comedic roles. Like vacation. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. And then I, I don't know. Even back then, I kind of had this sense of like menace underneath him. Like, yeah, he was funny and crazy and kooky, <laughs> but like, there's something dark going on here. And then I don't know if you know, like, kind of the legal troubles him and his wife have been having. They're like conspiracy theorists and they're like quack jobs, essentially. Mm. And I feel like that was always sort of lurking there. And this movie just totally like played into that. Yeah. Like, Oh, this guy's the goofy dad, but he's also like, there's something dark and sinister underneath. He even uses that word dark. Like he's always telling his kid these like stories about his childhood and the lessons are always really bad. Like yeah. he, he tells <laughs> these like kind of father knows best lessons to his kid in like every scene. And like the moral of the story is always something really toxic, but there's that one where he's like, you have to become comfortable with the dark, you know. At night, you'll be in your room, and it's dark in there. All places are dark sometimes, especially up here. And he points to his own head. <laughs> he just sort of lingers like it's really dark up in here. Uh, wow. <laughs> so uncomfortable. Well, you know, that's pretty great. Like, at the end of the movie, he goes to live with his grandparents. And they're it, basically, it's like they're cannibals, too. And his father learned the cannibalism from his father and so on. And I thought that was sort of a, that resonated too, where it's like, I don't know when you have like crazy fucked up parents, they make you a little crazy and fucked up. And then you pass that on to your kids and it's just this cycle of darkness or whatever. But I don't know, dude, this was a great recommendation. I really, I really dug this one. And the biggest shame about it, just looking at Bob Balaban's like IMDb list was just like how few of these types of very specific creative projects he got off the ground. Like he's directed a lot of TV movies with like these sort of generic topics. None of them looked particularly great to me. And it's mostly just because parents didn't really take off. Like the criticism of it was very mixed at the time, sort of like, mildly negative in general and the box office was nothing essentially and so he didn't get a lot of opportunities to make movies like this which is a fucking shame because he directs the hell out of this movie and i would have loved to have seen like bob balaban the like horror auteur <laughs> and make tons and tons of these like over the top horror movies he did get to make one more though in 1993 uh with my boyfriend's back which is Definitely more of a comedy. A zomcom is what they would call them now. <laughs> it's like it's like a romantic comedy about a teenage zombie, which in in '93 would have been more of a novelty than it is now. I feel like in the 2010s there was like so much zombie content that there were several 
uh, Zomcoms that came out. So it reminded me of what was that? Life after Beth. With that Aubrey one, Plaza. Warm Bodies, Warm Maybe Bodies, Fido. Yeah. yeah. This one is styled after EC comics in the 1950s, uh, like the kind of stuff that inspired Tales from the Crypt. Uh, and there's a lot of like comic book transitions, like instead of like a traditional screen wipe, you'll see like the page turning on like a comic book panel. And it's also got the same 1950s suburbia setting as Parents. So it's got a little bit of like an Archie Comics vibe as well. Uh, it's about a kid who is trying to like nice guy himself into a relationship with his high school crush. And he just can't muster up the courage to hit on her directly uh, because she has a jock boyfriend. I mean, he's a creep, right? I mean, Oh yeah, he's definitely a creep. He's nice guying her. Yeah. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Like nice guying is a. Yeah, I'm a nice guy. Why won't like, you go out with me? Right, right. I thought you meant like he is a nice guy. I'm like, wait, no, he's not. What? This guy's a, a creep. <laughs> I meant that more as a verb than a uh, description yeah, he's of him. Like yeah. an incel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's been obsessed with her since he was a little kid, but just never, you know, comes out and says it to her directly. And he decides the best way to shoot his shot mm. is to <laughs> <laughs> ask her out to the prom by staging a robbery at her job. He wants his friend to dress up in a like ski mask with like a fake gun and rob her convenience store during her shift. And he's going to smack the robber away and like come in as the hero and then ask her to prom. This is his grand plan. Instead of just like saying, you know, I'm into you. Do you want to go to prom with me? I mean, it's high risk, high reward. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> it just reminded me of like just these stupid plans that like you know teenagers or preteens would do where instead of like asking like a boy out or you know you'd be like oh i'm gonna get my friend to call him and then like ask for me and like pretend that it was this huge a- like shit like that would happen all the time and i cringe when i think of it and like watching this i was like oh but but you never thought to stage a robbery you gotta really like the person to stage a robbery for him I just remember, like, um, one of the girls I was friends with was like, oh, my God, like, what if I, like, run in front of his car and, like, he doesn't hit me? But, like, I just kind of fall and then he's like, oh, my God. And then he has <laughs> oh, to take boy. care of me. And I'm like, um, <laughs> I don't think that's how it's going to work. So it just, it just reminded me of, like, those just dumb, ignorant crush days and the uh, just the guy being a pain in the ass made it worse. <laughs> Well, this plan backfires pretty spectacularly. Um, a real uh, <laughs> mugger comes in and shoots him in the chest uh, as he's like trying to protect this girl that he likes. Um, and he's dying of a bullet wound. And she sits next to him and he says, will you go to prom with me <laughs> as he's dying? <laughs> and she says yes, because she, she pities him because he's like, he took a bullet for her and he's like dying in front of her eyes. And she says yes, and then he gives us thumbs up to his friend smiling, and then dies on the spot, which I laughed very hard at that gag. I thought that was very funny. Well, I think that's kind of a running theme, or not running theme, but like my experience with this film, that scene perfectly encapsulates it, where it's like, oh my god, that was so stupid, and (laughs) I'm having a good time. Like, I am laughing... It's so dumb, it's awful, and I'm here for the ride. You're not laughing at it, though, right? The, the, the no. humor is very intentional. 
And it's very specific, too. I think the sense of humor of the film is what saves it just from being like a generic horror comedy. Well, basically what happens is Johnny Dingle <laughs> dies Johnny in that Dingle. convenience store. <laughs> Stupid-ass name. And he wants to go to prom with this girl so bad that he raises from the dead. He, like, crawls out of his grave because he got that yes for the prom date and then just shows back up at school the next day like nothing happened. And, and everyone accepts it. That's, that's, so that's the humor, yeah. <laughs> and also what I found fascinating was like once he gets risen from the dead, that guy in the graveyard's like, Yeah, you can't leave the graveyard and then he leaves it, but they never really revisit that too much. <laughs> well, if he had stayed in the graveyard, um there would he be no problems. Rot. He would just live yeah. forever. But because he leaves the graveyard he decomposes like a zombie. But I thought it would have been cooler if they would have kept like pulling that whole thing in like oh no you have to be in the graveyard at midnight or something before your ear falls off again like i was expecting that like him to run back to the graveyard and not like stay in his room and go to school but i think that's kind of how this film operates it's just like one gag it's kind of like a sitcom it's just one gag after the other how silly can we be you know he goes to school and the teacher is you know he answers roll call and she's like that's not an excuse to you know be tardy because you just were dead. You're dead. Like, <laughs> and everyone just sort of accepts it. Like, oh, there's a dead guy at school now, and then he gets like picked on because he's the dead kid. Yeah, it's kind of like a thinly veiled racism metaphor. I picked up on that too. Like the way the townspeople kind of look at them together, is sort of like an interracial. dating thing going on i was like skimming like the wikipedia page for this movie because i'm like like what the hell like what's (laughs) there has to be some like weird bizarre bizarre shit in the background and like it was i can't remember it exactly but it's like a scholar reviewed this movie and was like oh this is all a metaphor like his de- his decomposing is when teenagers get acne. Whenever the girlfriend's like, oh my God, I'll let you eat me. Like she means, oh, have sex with me, which obvious. And then like, I don't know, just, <laughs> I just thought it was so funny. Like, and the whole like, oh, him being bullied for being like the dead kid is being the outsider. Bullied by Philip Seymour Hoffman. God. His what? worst performance. I, his I disagree. Career. I disagree wholeheartedly. <laughs> oh, I really he do. He was like just hunchback like just screaming the whole time it's such a good example of like okay he was given nothing in this role (laughs) and he like gave it a hundred percent like he brings like a real character to it like the way he has this hunchback the way he talks without opening his mouth and this is all like retrospective looking at it be like that's a damn good actor like he took peanuts and turned it into gold and made this character with a few I don't lines know, it's like just, a total it's so off the tone from everyone else like but that's every, that's why the I, main I like humor it. of the film is that everything's like over the plate like everyone is just very dry responding to this outrageous situation and he goes like full nick cage uh, just making a choice i just loved it running in the background it. like a bull like <laughs> it's crazy i love that he took this like serious actor mentality he's like ah this is my first role i'm gonna really bring it i thought it was like so funny that he had like an o'doyle family too (laughs) well and that plays into the what we were saying about the racism kind of subtext is like he's being hunted by these like hillbillies like there's 
the twangy banjo playing in the background anytime they're on Ooh, the screen. Yeah. Like it, I don't know. I couldn't tell if I was reading too much into it, like overthinking it or like, is this actually like the text of the film? But again, I don't think that that's really, I think the it's point. pretty explicitly the text of the movie. Like I think at the very least, he's kind of like a catch all for outsiders. Like yeah. people basically say like, we don't take kind of dead people around here yeah. <laughs> and you can insert whatever minority you want into that, you know, Mad Lib format. But yeah, I, the thing that really like stood out to me, I don't think this is as well directed as parents. Like it's not as beautiful as like an art object as that movie, but the absurdism of the humor is so over the plate and like so deadpan that I couldn't help but laugh at it. Like the doctor is like, he goes to see a doctor because he's decomposing and, and he wants to make it to prom before his body falls apart. And the doctor says to him, you're dead, which is unusual because we don't normally see this much activity in a dead person. <laughs> like <laughs> those kinds of lines are delivered with such a straight face and such a monotone. I thought this movie was very funny from start to end. Uh, maybe it drags a little bit towards the end, but. It kind of felt a little bit like, and I can't like think of a TV show, but it felt like an episode of like, a television series for teens. It reminded me of um, Heather's and it reminded me of better off dead. Like Mm. that kind of like absurdism where no one's commenting on how ridiculous the scenario is. Yeah. Uh, I just, for some reason it just came off like more television. Like a, I don't know. It's not a TV movie. Yeah. That's probably (laughs) why. (laughs) Well, also like the title is my boyfriend's back, but he's like not her boyfriend. (laughs) <laughs> and he wasn't when he came back. So it's so frustrating. To oh, me. so I agree 100% with you, Brittany. Like, one thing, especially in the second half of the movie, I could not stand was the girlfriend character. Like, what is she thinking? Like, you weren't into this guy. You thought he was a creep when he was alive. But now that he's dead, I guess you're kind of into him. Necrophiliac. Right? What's it's, going on there? Yeah, like, it's her kink. It's almost like it's his fantasy as he's dying. Like, this is how he would want everything to work out. Because when he comes back, that's when she switches and, like, is into him. I guess so. But that actually happened quite a few times in the movie. You know, like, like with his best friend. Like, he tries to bite his arm off. And then a few scenes later in the film, he's like, all is forgiven. Like, none of the characters' (laughs) motivations made any sense at any given time. I do like their reconciliation scene because the mom's in the kitchen while they're arguing. And he's like, you tried to, you tried to bite me. And the mom's like, sounds like you owe someone an apology. <laughs> well, the mom was such a great character. Like, she just loves her son. The parents were fabulous. Yeah. Like, this was like, these were good parents. And the parents and parents <laughs> were like the bad parents. Well, yeah. And like, the mom goes and gets a cadaver that's like hanging out in the fridge because she doesn't want her son to go hungry. Like, yeah, they were being very good parents to a zombie, which I thought was and like. And then she tries funny. to feed him a toddler. That was amazing. <laughs> the toddler who is the what the brother of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, so he already ate one son, and then <laughs> the dad shows up, and he's like, you're going to eat my other living son? Right? I have nothing left after you eat my toddler. Why are That's you doing this so to my funny. family? I don't know. I I like. I totally enjoyed it. I mean, I, I do kind of agree with Brittany that it does feel kind of like a, a TV a sitcom sort of vibe, but um, 
I don't know. It's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. And no. I think like it is legitimately funny. It's not like an ironic laughing at it. Like, oh, wow, these are some really stupid jokes. And I have a stupid sense of humor. And I'm laughing with it the whole time. And I don't know. I can, I can totally get on board with that. I had fun with this movie. Yeah, it was silly and fun. And it, like, I didn't find it to be like gross. I mean, some stuff was gross, but, like, the, the whole zombie stuff, like, it wasn't very gory. and Probably because it had, like, no money. I wish it would have been a little gory. Yeah, there's, like, a scene where she's nibbling on his ear in a car while they're making out and his ear falls off. And you never see the wound. Like, he keeps that side of his face Which I was fine with. I was like, I yes, let's keep it It's not it only light. why we're here. Yeah. And I think it's because I watched this, you know, after Parent. <laughs> and Parents was just disgusting. And I'm like... I need to, um, like, I can't do this again. And But this was kind of like, oh, okay. Like, we're not going to go that far. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I do think the movies are somewhat linked, though, right? Like, you can kind of tell they were made by the same person, even if yes. the tone's different. Yeah, this, like, great style. I mean, I wish there was more. Yeah. The only other one that looked interesting in his catalog to me was this, like, made-for-TV movie about a real person played by Susan Sarandon where she gives all of her money away to her gay butler. Oh it's just my about God. Them hanging out. I love made for TV movies and <laughs> that's so good. But, it, but it is missing this kind of like very specific creative mind. I think like I, I the fact that these two movies, if nothing else, just the way they like satirize that leave it to beaver kind of sub suburbs past and the way that they do it and just how dark they are. Like, I did not know Bob Balaban was preoccupied with those themes, and uh, I could have watched like ten more movies uh, along these lines. I was him. very surprised to know that he was involved with any any of the three movies we talked about today. All shocking. Like one thing I noticed with the two movies, and then reading the criticism was of both of them is like, oh, they're tonally inconsistent. Like, is Parents supposed to be a horror movie or a dark comedy? The, you know, with my boyfriend's back, oh, it's all over the place. And, like, I don't think that that's true at all. I feel like he picks a tone and, like, really just drives it home. You know, like, parents to me feels like, okay, here's this thing I'm trying to capture about adolescence and how surreal and weird it is. Like, I'm going to take that 100 miles an hour all the way uh, and then... Same thing with this. Like, okay, I'm going to make this silly teen zombie thing. It's going to have very broad humor, but it just goes there. Like, he takes an idea and just, like, goes all the way with it, no matter how, like, high art or low art. And I think I really like that about him. Yeah, I think the sense of humor in My Boyfriend's Back is very specific. Like, once you clue into how deadpan the humor is, um, just in like how everyone's responding chipperly to this like grotesque scenario to call that movie all over the place is just factually inaccurate. Like It, it hones in on a very specific tone and, and yeah, the same with parents as well. It's just a different vibe. It's, it's more of a nightmare than a sitcom. Total nightmare. Well, uh, next week on the show, we are going to talk about a movie that came up recently when we were talking about the talking cat films. I believe James asked us uh, what are good movies about talking cats. 
And uh, one of Britney's responses was The Cat Returns, the Studio Ghibli film. Yes. And uh, next week on the show, me, Boomer, and Allie are going to revisit that one from the early 2000s. Nice. I always, like, fantasize. Like, let that be real. Like, I hope that my little cat, Hermes, like, walks around on his little legs at night. <laughs> Do you want to be forced into a marriage with him? No. Or you want to uh, skip that part of the plot? <laughs> I'll skip that part, I guess. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about it next week. Maybe we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll dive into the details a little further. Sure. <laughs> And uh, Boomer's actually been posting a lot of reviews on the website recently, so I'm going to link his feed into the show notes so you can see all the reviews. Finally, someone other than me is running their mouth, which is great. <laughs> so you can see him <laughs> reviewing a bunch of movies, uh, and we'll be back next week to talk about an anime, which is outside of our usual zone. I don't think we've talked about an anime on this show before, after 131 episodes. And there's so many of them, too, and they're yeah. all great. So um, that's that's cool. That's outside my comfort zone, man. Like parents and my boyfriend's back. That's the kind of like trash I know about. The anime, I, I'm not an expert. So I did. Um, I watched uh, Your Name this Ooh. past weekend, and mm-hmm. you've seen it, Brandon, right? Yeah, it was one of my favorite movies of the the decade when we made those lists. I loved it, and so yeah, awesome. I would love to hear more about some good anime and about marrying cats. That's our promise for next week. Wow. A little cat marriage, a little <laughs> interspecies. Odd. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>